Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Great guest today. I often get asked about the difference between mindfulness meditation and TM or Transcendental Meditation. This week, the, the we're talking to a teacher named Light Watkins who teaches in the Vedic tradition, which is the tradition out of which uh, Transcendental Meditation emerges. And he's been doing it since uh, the late 90s. Um, I'm trying to keep a positive attitude about him because he's uh, so damn good looking um, that it's annoying. But other than that, he's fantastic. Um, and I, th- I think you'll love his story and what he has to say about what meditation has done for him and, uh, and for many of the people he's worked with. So we'll get to light in a second. Also, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find out how he ended up taking the name Light. Um, we'll get to him in a second. Let's do your, your voicemails first. And um, per usual, the caveat, I'm not a mental health expert or a meditation teacher, and I haven't heard these calls in advance. I just do my best to answer them from the standpoint of a writer and reporter and practitioner. Here we go. Call number one. Hey, Dan. I'm 17 years in the same job, looking to get out, make a change, but really don't know how to proceed. How do you think meditation can help me in this effort? Appreciate it. Thanks. That's interesting. Uh, it, it, it ain't going to fix all your problems. I've said that a million times. It's not like you start meditating and, this, and the, the, the solution will become radiantly clear. Maybe that will happen, but I, I, I certainly wouldn't guarantee it. What I do think is that it helps you um, – I do think in my personal experience that it, it's helped me make better decisions when it comes to my career because I can have a better sense of what's ego noise and what's actually true. And and don't get me wrong, I can still fall victim to the ego noise because it's pretty prominent, at least in my case. But it just gives me a leg up. I think it gives me an advantage and it makes me a little less – it makes me better at hearing – you know, I seek and I hope heed other people's advice. And so I'm a little bit better at just seeing when I'm getting defensive, when I've uh, when I'm not getting the answer I want – and things like that. So this is the, the it's, um, I've been in the same job for 18 years. Uh, so I, I, I get it. Making a change like that is really scary. And uh, but I do think having something that is that can boost your your overall sense of calm, can boost your focus, can help you be less yanked around by all of the powerful emotions that come into play when you're talking about career, because because it goes right to identity and it goes right to finances. Um, it, it's a it's a sensitive issue. So I do think meditation is a really useful way to, to kind of s- surf all of this stuff rather than um, get in, engulfed by it. Um, but again, it's not you know I, I as, as regular listeners will know I'm I'm very skeptical of of talk of some sort of miracle cure. So good luck. It's a big it's a big thing you're trying to do, and I do think meditation will help. But um, it, many other things will help too, like finding people you trust to give you good advice. All right, call number two. Hey Dan, it's Kathy. Um, I love everything you do with meditation and uh, TV. Thank you so much for all your work. Uh, I have a question um, concerning a comparison between meditation by focusing on the breath and um, Transcendental Meditation. Would the benefits be greater um, through one or the other or not? I guess that's really what I want to know. I I know that there's various um, types and these are two of them. So I'd be interested in hearing your opinion. Thanks. Bye. So this is proof, by the way, that I definitely don't hear these calls in advance. Um, But my very smart producers know how to pick the calls to line up well with the guest. What which which is better for you, transcendental meditation or mindfulness meditation? I you know I don't think there's really an answer to that. Um, there's been a, a significant amount of science on both. From my point of view, there's been a little bit more science, um, a little more scientific research done on the mindfulness side. But I, I don't think that means mindfulness is better. Uh, I just think that it's just the practice scientists have gravitated toward more, probably because it's more secular. Um, but, but I, I really do think it's worth, 
if you're kind of hemming and hawing, I think it's worth perhaps trying both. But I would give each a uh, a real shot first um, because I don't think it's the type of thing you can do two days of one, two days of the other, and and you have a sense of which one is doing more for you. I, I would give you know I would spend a couple months, if not a year, on each one and then make a decision. I am personally. Well, I've never actually been trained in transcendental meditation. I understand what it is. It's it uses a mantra, which is a word you repeat to yourself silently uh, as a way to to blot out discursive random ego chatter. Whereas in mindfulness meditation, generally at the beginning, what you're doing is focusing on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, and then when you get distracted, you start again. So there's real overlap in the Venn diagram between these two. So there are similarities, but what I like about mindfulness is that the fruit of the practice really is this thing called mindfulness, uh, which is the kind of self-awareness, the familiarity with the workings of your own mind that enables you not to be yanked around by your mind. So if, you underst- if you're able to see anger at the beginning rather than by the time it's you know, become a, a tornado, you're less likely to spend hours and hours you know, acting in, in a blind rage. You might you know, might say one sharp thing, but then catch yourself, apologize, and let the anger pass. So some of that, you will get some of that benefit from, in my understanding and experience of talking to other practitioners. And, and so uh, forgive me, TM devotees, if I've got this wrong. I think you'll get some of that benefit from TM, but it's, it's, it, it's not really the focus in the same way that mindfulness training is. I think, in my understanding, TM has a different set of benefits that, again, also show up in mindfulness but are a l- little less uh, emphasized, um, which ha- are around, you know, the sort of calming, focusing uh, of the mind uh, that that a lot of people feel really, I've heard it described as, you know, doing 20 minutes of TM a day feels like they got two hours, extra hours of sleep, or that they're accessing levels of creativity they haven't been able to access before. So I, I think there are compelling cases for both of these. Um, and I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to be overly sectarian about these issues. I mean, I, I just try to be clear about where I am, but I don't. I you know we've got we've had lots of TM folks on this podcast, and I, I'm 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 down with it. Um, speaking of TM, so as I mentioned at the top, TM emerges out of uh, a Vedic tradition, which is another way of saying the Hindu tradition, whereas mindfulness emerges out of the Buddhist tradition, and so TM is literally a trademarked kind of um, of Vedic meditation. There are these teachers, some of whom actually started out in the TM world, who went off to teach sort of a non-TM Vedic meditation. TM, they do give away a lot of trainings, but but most people have to pay, and it's a I think it's maybe a thousand dollars or something like that. And so Vedic, uh, these Vedic traditioner uh, practitioners who aren't within the TM world have more uh, leeway to not charge that. So there's some folks who are drawn to that for that reason. Anyway, there are some pretty prominent teachers in the Vedic tradition, including our guest this week, Light Watkins, who's been, uh, as his bio says, active in this space since 1998. Um, He's also a yoga teacher and a former model, which we'll try not to hold against him. Um, He's written a book called Bliss More, uh, which is out right now. And um, he teaches all over the place. He's also a nomad or at least he is for now. He's just trying it out. Um, uh, you'll you'll hear what that is uh, when he starts talking. Speaking of letting him starting to talk, let me do that. I'm going to shut up and give you light walk-ins. Here we go. Well, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. That's How'd an you? honor Well, and a privilege. Right back at you yeah. on both counts. You have such a big megaphone in the meditation world, and I've been in this world for about 20 years, so it's nice to see someone like you out here really popularizing it and making it accessible for people. So thank, thank you. you for that. It's I, I, just for people listening, because they can't see you, you say you've been in, in this for 20 years, yeah. but you look like you're in your late 20s, <laughs> even though you're like my age. I basically. started in the spirit world and then I, yeah. came, I was incarnated. It's, no, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know these things. Is it causation? Is it correlation? I don't know. But for whatever reason, I I, uh, I have been doing it for quite a while. And Do you have a twin brother? I don't. No, See, that no, would that'd be, be the only way yeah, to really tell, yeah, right? That's the only control. Group. And what's ironic about that is that I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama, and I have a pretty big family—six of us total—in my immediate actually yeah, in my immediate family. Then I have a, a, a half sister 
nobody meditates. I'm the only one in my family that meditates. So, um, how do they look? <laughs> I'm often confused for the younger brother. I would imagine. And I'm technically the second in line. So there we go. Yeah. So, so how did you get into the, the meditation racket? I started in the Riverside Church up on the Upper West Side. I was living in New York. I was working in fashion. I was modeling at the time. This is back in the mid-90s. And I, got, I was getting into yoga. And this is back, you know, when there were only two equinoxes, one on 19th Street and one up on in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Now the health club is Right, now it's like yeah. Starbucks. But yeah. I was going to the one on Amsterdam, and, uh, and I, just, I was lifting weights because that's what you do when you model. That's part of your job. Not a problem I've had. Yeah. <laughs> the record. And I noticed that these, these uh, really attractive women were going into this group exercise room with no shoes on and these little rolled up things. And so my curiosity got the best of me one night and I went in there and that's how I got introduced to yoga. And then, you know, back then they didn't have these kind of, you know, weekend or whatever month long teacher trainings. They were actually pretty legit teachers teaching in the gyms because that's really the only place that they could teach. There weren't a ton of yoga studios. So I got introduced to meditation through yoga and I would do all these different experiences, go to these yoga teachers houses and sit down and, and, um, and then eventually found the village voice classified ads. There was the, the meditation group. I think it was a Zen group that I was going to up in the Riverside church. So I started doing that and that was my first sort of formal introduction to meditation, but I never really felt like anything was happening. And, um, but for whatever reason, I kept going back because I just felt like it was a really interesting and odd thing to do. And you read all the, you know, the spiritual books, everybody talks about it. So you figure there's got to be something to it. But um, I just found a bunch of frustration. And then eventually I relocated to frustration because you because nothing was happening. So I'm thinking, is it a situation where I'm having to use my imagination or um, is there some threshold you have to arrive at? I mean, I'm asking all these questions because there's no Dan Harris out there to to. To remind Wasn't there us, a teacher at the Riverside. <laughs> there was, but it's, it, she was more like a facilitator, I and see. we were doing this thing where we we would listen to music, and we were supposed to feel the energy in air quotes energy moving around the body, mm-hmm. and I just never really felt like I was doing anything other than sitting there listening to some opera sounding mm-hmm. uh, music. So anyway, long story short, I relocated to Los Angeles a few years later. I started uh, getting into the yoga scene there. I became a yoga teacher, and then I became the person leading meditations at the end of the yoga classes. But at the same time, I wasn't, re- I'd never been trained to be a meditation teacher. And that's one of the big misconceptions is that people think that just because you go through a yoga teacher training, that you're also a meditation expert. But I got no, it's like, it's like uh, physicians don't get any dietary training. <laughs> yoga teachers don't usually get any meditation training, but everybody I'm married pre- to a physician who doesn't. Right. Yeah. And, and everybody projects onto them, oh, that person is a meditation expert. So I'm leading meditations now, basically parroting what I've heard my teachers say and, um, and feeling like a sham. Because, again, I don't know if this is what's supposed to be happening or what the deal is. It's like the emperor's new clothes. You know, everybody's talking about this thing. I'm on the procession as well talking about it, but I'm not having any kind of experiences. So eventually I start practicing Vedic meditation. I got introduced to Tom Knowles, the Vedic meditation teacher who's been out, you know, between L.A. and New York, and I learned to meditate with him. Can you can you yeah? So describe what Vedic Vedic meditation, which is basically a generic form of transcendental meditation. So Tom was a TM teacher for about thirty years. A lot of those guys apparently went independent in the nineteen eighties, and they started teaching. But then TM said, "Look, whatever you can do, whatever you want, you just can't call it transcendental meditation." So. Um, he was teaching under the moniker Vedic meditation, which just means ancient Indian, which means a meditation that comes from the Vedas, which is the ancient Indian body of knowledge from which we get yoga and Ayurveda and 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 um, Vedic astrology and all of those different systems from. And so the basic premise of that system is that everything is connected. Right. And that you can you can go beyond your surface mind and into that sort of oneness aspect of yourself within yourself, right? So again, sounds kind of flu flu. Okay. Yeah, whatever. Oneness. And, and you start going through the actual process. And it was the first time that I felt like I actually had a tangible experience 
of something other than staring at the back of my eyelids. And I was hooked and became really enthusiastic about it, started... Wait, wait, wait. Two-part question. Mm -hmm. One, what are you doing in your mind in Vedic meditation? Right. What And what was the experience that you referenced? So here are the big differences in what I experienced with that versus what I was experiencing before. Before, most of the instruction was really centered around body position, sitting comfortable or sitting with your back straight, you know, and um, and then some level of focusing your mind on a point or or, you know, different verbal prompts, you know, let go of this now, visualize that, etc. Notice this, witness that. And with the Vedic meditation approach, the whole the whole system is based around sitting comfortably. So and what that really means is just sitting with back support, sitting like you would sit if you were going to watch television and then you close your eyes and the reason behind sitting comfortably is so that your body is not a distraction to the settling of the mind. And so when your eyes are closed, you're at the surface awareness, which is where everybody usually starts. And that's where the mind is really, really busy and racing. And then you use a sound, which is collectively known as a mantra. It's a sound you are making in your mind silently. You're thinking it not just silently, but also passively. Passively, And this is a very, very important point, because if you go back and you read, say, um, Dr. Herbert Benson's book, Relaxation Response, which is the sort of groundbreaking research on that specific form of meditation, where he says you have a completely different uh, nervous system and physiological state, it can get very rested and all of that. He uses the word focus, but he got that from a transcendental meditation instruction. And in and, and that um body of teaching, they don't really use the word focus because focus is a different style of handling the mind and handling the mantra. So, but you can forgive him because he's not a teacher, he's a doctor, right? And that's what happens. So you use this mantra in a very, very passive way. And what that means is the technique is not centered around focusing on the mantra. It's about using the mantra to initiate a settling effect, right? So what does that mean? It means you start off at the busy surface and then you introduce this sound passively. So basically, instead of trying to stop other thoughts or exclude other experiences, you're experiencing that sound and you're also aware of other things that are happening around you. And then eventually, without looking for this to happen, the mantra will cause the mind to start settling, which means in a real world way, it feels like you're meandering away from your surface and you start having more thoughts, which may feel like you're thinking about your to-do list or conversations, or you start to feel like you're having dreams or you start to feel like you're falling asleep. And eventually you can reach a state where really nothing is happening. And I mean that literally you're not having any thoughts. There's no mantra. You're just in this kind of void feeling. Now you don't know you're there while you're there. Mm. So it's not until after the fact where you start to regain awareness and you think you've been sitting there for five minutes and you look at the clock and you see that actually 15 or 20 minutes have passed. And you also feel this, this sense of energy or, you know, like you are being cradled or something like that. And it's a very, very different experience from what I had the three or four years prior to that, when I was going around, you know, trying to focus my mind. And it's not to say that that's an incorrect approach. It's just that it doesn't feel, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel as tangible as the one that I was having with the Vedic meditation approach. So I had my first sort of tangible experience of something other than just sitting there waiting for the time to finish. And it just really blew my mind because like you, I, I consider myself to be a healthy skeptic and I don't, you know, I don't buy into things that are requiring me to believe in them or use my imagination. And, and, uh, and so I, I realized that there was something to this, this approach. And so I did it again and hit that state again. And I did it again. And I literally went from being a reluctant meditator, you know, knowing I should do it because it's good for me to becoming an enthusiastic meditator. And I started 
uh, shadowing my teacher around and apprenticing him. And I didn't even really, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to be around when he was teaching other people because I wanted to see if other people were having the same kind of experience. And then a few years of that quickly passed. And then I, I had an opportunity to go to India uh, with him and some of his other protégés and learn how to teach this stuff to other people. And I did that. I was away for about three or four months, came back to my one-bedroom apartment in West Hollywood and started teaching all my friends and my yoga students and everybody else was having that same experience. And I thought, this is amazing. And Can this you is, say more about what the experience is? Yeah, it's just, it's just, again, allowing your mind to settle away from the busy monkey you know, surface that people typically complain about and getting into this other state of being this like relaxation or what it what is what it's, is it it's 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 a sense of oneness it's a sense of of nothingness you're not really thinking anything you you literally are experiencing gaps in your in your thinking process you know where you one minute you're aware that you're you're rehearsing some conversation the next minute you're still rehearsing the conversation, but then there was a gap in there that mm-hmm. you don't know. And and the closest thing I can I can describe I can use to describe it is when you're lying in your or you're sitting in your bed at night reading a book and you get to that one line in the book, time goes by and you're still on the same line in the book. <laughs> except now you can't really remember what you read before. That's happened to me on Ambien. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like a nature sort of ambient type of feeling. And but it doesn't have you know, side effects of taking pharmaceuticals or using, you know, other stimulants or, or relaxation things. It's just, you just feel good. It just feels really good. And of course, when you go back and you, you, you look at the research and you see, oh, you're, I'm getting serotonin or dopamine or, you know, whatever, all these different bliss chemicals, it kind of makes sense that that's kind of what I'm feeling. And so I started teaching this stuff and this, I started doing that 12 years ago. I probably taught 3,000 people now personally. And one of the things with Vedic meditation or TM is that once you teach somebody, you you keep in touch with those people and you can see them change over time. So you have a real world sense of the progression of what happens in addition to your own changes as a, as a practitioner. And, and you see these amazing things. You hear these amazing stories. You see people from all walks of life who are having these very profound experiences and, and you, so, you know, it's possible. And now I got to the point where it's just, you know, it's just almost, it's, it's obvious. It's expected that that's going to happen at some point. If, uh, if someone gets a chance to sit in a room with me. And so a few years ago I got approached by uh, random house and they said, can you put this into a book? And I ended up writing that book. Uh, bliss more how to succeed in meditation without really trying because that's essentially what you're doing is you're not you're not witnessing anything you're not focusing on anything you're not trying to do anything it's just literally you sitting there i use this this um, generic sort of mantra which i refer to as a settling sound in the technique in the book what is the mantra a hum a hum a hum a h h u m a hum so and that's a just, you know, you'll find that in yoga circles. Deepak Chopra uses it in his 21-day challenge. But it's a primordial sound, which is what a lot of those mantras come from, is primordial sounds from the Sanskrit um, language. And meaning it does not arbitrarily assign to a meaning or like we have in the English language, like the word red doesn't necessarily mean anything primordially as this color that we now associate with red. But apparently in the in that ancient Vedic or Indian tradition, all the sounds that um, were discovered through people meditating and whatnot um, have a sort of primordial essence, which means that they contain the vibration of, of that sound in nature. So a hum, or, or I should say the most common one is om. They say om is the sound of the universe, but what that really means is that it contains the vibration of that of the universe, right? Now, can you study this in science? Can you measure it? I don't know. Probably not. I've never seen any studies that say this, but that's what the whole system is based on. So if we're going to agree that anything in that system is true for us, then we have to at least be open to the possibility that it could exist, right? Even though technically we can't see it or smell it or taste it or feel it. But 
from my own direct experiences with using my mantra, which I can't really talk about because it's my own personal mantra that I got from my teacher, but it's, there's a, there's definitely an effect and, and, um, and yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So just get back to the technique for a second. So you're, you're, it sounds like at least at first there would be some effort because you have to have the wherewithal to repeat the mantra to yourself. Um, and then when you get distracted, which you will, I, I would imagine, you need to have the effort to go back to the mantra, right? So isn't there some effort there? Yes, that, that's absolutely right. There's some, there's, there's minimal effort, right? So it's not, it's not that you're doing absolutely nothing. But what happens is over time, you become less mantra dependent. Because when you have the first few settling experiences, your mind, as it does, because it's very plastic, it starts to recognize the patterns and it starts to go there on its own with less and less effort. And so after a while, um, you may find yourself having complete 20 minute meditations, which is the longest you ever want to do it anyway, where you don't even have a mantra. It's just that you sat down with the intention to meditate. And, uh, and this is, this is said to be, close to the experience of, you know, how do you get a child to go to sleep at night? Maybe you sing them lullabies, maybe you, you know, read a story and things like that. And that's kind of like what the mantra is used for to induce a shift in the state of consciousness. Why is 20 minutes the longest you'd want to do it? Well, Herbert Benson, back in the 1970s, what he said was that your body can only sustain that relaxation response for about 20 minutes. Now, technically, you can meditate as long as you want. But apparently when you go beyond 20 or 30 minutes, your body starts to revert back to your waking state of consciousness. So that was documented. I don't, um, I, I, I definitely like the fact that there are meditation studies out there that can verify a lot of things. But I think that a lot of these studies, you know, are, can be a little bit ambiguous as well because there's meditation's a generic term. So, you know, when you talk about meditation, when I talk about meditation, when someone else who does uh, crocheting meditation talks about meditation, they can be all different things with different applications and different methodologies and different time, you know, lengths. But to the to the pedestrian observer, they think we're all doing basically the same thing. So if you look at the fine print of the studies, you know, if Richie Davison is doing a study on something. He's probably studying something related to mindfulness. And uh, if they're doing a study at the Mind Body um, um, Benson Institute up in Cambridge, they're probably doing something based more on on his technique of the relaxation response. And those are two different ways of meditating. And so if one thing works in one way. I don't think it necessarily means it's going to work in the other way, in the same way that, you know, if you're playing ping pong and I'm playing basketball, they're both sports, but they don't they don't have the same effect this vedic technique that you're describing the, the tm folks they they say you can't you the only way you can learn it is face to face with a teacher but you wrote a book so i would imagine you're saying you could learn vedic meditation through the book you know what's interesting about that is again there's a lot of sort of politics in the meditation world and if you really want to like look at it objectively and, and this is what I really appreciated about Herbert Benson's research. A lot of people don't realize this, but Herbert Benson wasn't a meditator. <laughs> he studied meditation for 30 or 40 years. We should just say he was a Harvard... Um, He's a Harvard a cardiologist. Cardiologist who wrote this seminal a researcher. book. You referenced it earlier. Yeah, it sold 4 million copies. Yeah, this was in the 70s in or the 80s? In the 70s, early, in the early 70s. Yeah, and was, you can find it at like CVS to That's this right. day. Uh, and it was, he basically did, he was looking at TM meditators and he basically gives you in the book i remember it was one of the first meditation books i ever read he gives he's like just say the word peace or one in your he, head as your mantra he discovered that you don't need a tm mantra in order to elicit the relaxation response but all of tm's research is based on herbert benson's research and he he for him the relaxation response was a phrase he coined as the opposite of, of the, the stress response yes that's right so he saw that the stress response was the most excited the nervous system can become, and the relaxation response was the most rested the nervous system can become. And so if you can elicit that through TM, he said, well, what else can you... The stress response can be initiated through many, many things. What else can initiate the relaxation response? So he started exploring. You know, can you say a prayer? 
if you're sitting comfortably and being passive in the meditation, can you do this? Can you do that? And he saw that the only things that were required was comfortable seating position, being passive in the mind, and having some sort of point that initiated the, I, I told you earlier, he called it a point of focus, but in the TM doctrine, they would never use that word, focus. Focus, right. yeah. Because it implies effort. It but implies as effort. Described, there is some effort. There is some the minimal effort, yeah. So what they say is they use least effort. Use I had a little effort. bit of a mm, friendly beef with this or misunderstanding over this word focus or concentration mm -hmm. with Bob Roth. I heard who, the interview. Yeah, so Bob Roth is the... The Honcho. main sort of TM teacher. He's yeah. out there. He teaches all the celebrities, meditation many Bob. celebrities, and meditation Bob. That's what Letterman calls him. And I was saying, well, classically, you would consider a mantra a concentration technique. And he got um, he he re resisted that. I still stand by. Actually, from my understanding, it it is a concentration technique in that it's not a mindfulness technique. You know, you are picking one thing, bringing your mind, you're centering your mind on that. And then when you can distract it, start again, whereas mindfulness is much more open to whatever is arising. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we couldn't come to an agreement, and maybe you and I won't either. But well, I'm not sure a, how no, I think that's the great thing about you know the fact that I'm not associated with an organization, so to speak, is I can really talk about this very objectively. And if there's anything out there that proves whatever I'm saying to be inaccurate or that someone can have a better – and when I say that word, I'm, I'm – um, implying a more enjoyable meditation experience, I'd be happy. I'd be the first one to uh, to try it and then to incorporate it into my teaching. Um, so far, I haven't really found anything that creates a more enjoyable experience than what I've been practicing and teaching. But that's not to say that this is the only way to do it or this is the right way to do it. What I find, and, and what you've already kind of highlighted in your work, is that people are struggling. People are out there really, really struggling to meditate. A lot of people don't really know you know what to do. There's a lot of a big PR problem, as you've said in the past, around meditation, and and my whole mission has just really become to simplify the approach and to help people start something that they can get excited about. Because the only way they're going to do it on a regular enough basis to get the benefits from it is if they, on some level, feel some tangible benefit from mm -hmm. the beginning. Yeah, I agree. Which means it kind of has to be enjoyable to enjoyable to some extent whether they're getting dates because they're meditating or, you know, there's some sort of kitchen table problem that's being solved in the meditation. And I don't have that much discipline to, to force myself every day into this thing. But just from my own direct experience, what I found is that when I started enjoying meditation, I became an enthusiastic meditator and I'm not special. There's nothing special about me. I'm from Alabama there's more snowstorms and meditators in Alabama when I was growing up. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I was, you know, working out in the gym. I was didn't have some long yoga history. My parents weren't yogis. I never heard about any form of meditation before I met my teacher. I just had an experience and I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and it was able to be repl replicated through other people from my teaching. And, and it, it, that was when life got really, really exciting for me. I have more questions about your life, but I just want to, I, I cut you off before you could fully answer the question about whether somebody can learn the Vedic technique without. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, there's people I've been getting reports. I kind of I kind of bought into the same indoctrination of, oh, this can't be taught through a book. And, and the truth of the matter is no one who is teaching meditation, including yourself, has mastered it through a book or an app. You know, everybody has a teacher and of the. If, of if whatever they're teacher. learning. If you're a teacher, yeah, if you're a you teacher. have a teacher. If you're yes, a teacher, yes. you typically have a teacher, right? So it just depends on what people want to experience. If you really want to understand the nuances of, of the technique, then you probably want to find a teacher. But I don't think that means that you shouldn't have any exposure at all. And that's why I wrote the book that I wrote. And, um, and I've been seeing, I've been pleasantly surprised by seeing a lot of evidence that people are having these experiences. Um, there was one woman on, on Amazon who said, this is my first review. I had to write a review because I just came out of this meditation and I went to this place I've never been before. And she started describing it and it was exactly the same experience that I had. And I thought this is fantastic, you know? So that means that now people don't have to be in a room with me in order to have an experience if they're willing to go through, you know, with reading a book about it or what have you. And that makes it more that that democratizes 
this technique that a lot of people think, well, I have to go to this thing and pay all this money and blah, blah, blah. Might even make it to Alabama. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's been all over the world so far and, and it's not a bestseller yet, but it's getting a lot of traction and people who experience it are either super fans or, you know, they just, they just don't know about it yet, but that's what I've been saying. So I'm really excited about it. And I'm really, again, I'm honored to be here talking about it because I do appreciate the platform that you have and the perspective that you have on meditation. And I thought that that could be a really interesting conversation from your, your experiences yeah, and for sure. listening to this experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's such an interesting discussion between the Buddhist slash mindfulness world and the Hindu slash TM slash Vedic world. And yeah, I, I'm also of the view that you can do both, but um, I'm really of the view that a friend of mine, a former colleague, uh, uh, who wrote a book about working out and losing weight. It was called Thin Spired. Her name is Mara Schiavacampo and just a great person. And I was talking to her about working out and mm-hmm. I was asking her some questions about a certain kind of workout and I was, wasn't sure if it was hard enough. And she said, look, the best kind of workout you do is that is the one you actually do. Right. And so that's my view on meditation. Yeah. There are lots of ways to train the mind uh, that fall under meditation. Um, as long as you're not hurting yourself or others, the one that calls to you is the one I think you should do. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. Tell me about you, like, because you were a model and then you just got into yoga and then all of a sudden you, you jumped on the meditation train pretty aggressively. So what did it, what did the practice do to your life? How did it change you? What were you like back when you were a Mr. Lifting Weights model guy? How would you be different from the person sitting in front of me right now? You know, what's funny is you hear a lot of really amazing uh, stories about how people have transformed, such as your story, you know, having a panic attack on air and then getting into meditation, etc. And you're very open about how you still have, you know, you still grapple with things uh, like that, uh, anxiety and whatnot. I have to say that I haven't really had a whole lot of that in my life for whatever reason. I don't really understand why, but Maybe I used because to, you're like six, five and really good. Looking. <laughs> I don't know, but I used to feel shameful about it. Believe it or not, that, like, that your life was that I haven't sunny. had more drama yeah, and yeah, yeah, darkness and all of happy that. Happy family, happy family. Yeah. And everyone's very supportive, but at the same time, you know, obviously if you're on planet earth, you're still grappling with, with something. And, and I do have my, you know, battles that I fight and all that, but it's not that I'm coming from some stressed out place and um, and now meditation has made it all better. What I would attribute meditation to doing is to enhancing 
the the what they call the still small voice, the voice of intuition, and making it really loud and unambiguous so that I can take risks or what other people would perceive as risks. Um, what I would perceive as me listening to my heart or following my in, my inner guidance. And so I've been able to do things like, uh, you know, graduate myself from 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 the modeling or, you know, take the leap of faith in becoming a meditation teacher back in 2002 when really nobody was talking about meditation. Yeah, that's and my, early. My own family was, you know, embarrassed to, to introduce me as a meditation teacher. Really? Yeah, of course. They would say, this is former, he's a former model, you know? They kept saying that for 10 years. <laughs> he's a former model until people like you made meditation more popular. And now that they see it on morning talk shows and on the news and read it in Newsweek, uh, then now, now everyone's excited about it and have a book out. Now they're like, oh, he's an author. But, you know, in, in places Was like... Was Light your given name or did you have a different name growing up? So I had a different name growing up and um, Light became my name in, in, uh, in 14 years ago. I can't remember the year. But the irony about that is that it wasn't associated with my work. It was just, it was literally born out of a conversation. I mean, I, I really identify with, with, with your whole attitude and perspective about these spiritual things because I kind of in this, I'm cut from the same cloth. And, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine one day in the farmer's market in Los Angeles. And we were talking about names and, you know, how in LA people tend to take on these new identities. And I had met, I'd met a few guys recently in the yoga scene who had changed their names. There was a guy named Mother. There was a guy named, uh, truth there was a guy named pineapple head and it was really pineapple head that inspired the conversation because when he introduced himself he had such confidence in, in his pineapple name head? In pineapple head. Right. and that's just how la is you mm-hmm. know like people really own their stuff and i was telling my friend this and i and i and i um i posed the question you know if you could change your name to something some word like pineapple head what would you wait, said you had to do this you had to change your name what would you change it to and he said ocean and he said, what would you change your name to? And I thought about it and I go, I can't think of anything. I, I don't know if I would do something like that. And he said, well, just what's the first thing that comes to mind? And I said, nothing. And he started counting down five, four, three, two, one. And I just blurted out light. And again, it was another situation. It started percolating. And it was that very familiar feeling, the same feeling I had when I quit my first job, the same feeling I had when I bought that one-way ticket to Paris when I was you know, starting out as a model, the same feeling I had when I moved to LA from New York. And I recognized it as that, oh, you, this is some sort of inner guidance situation. I don't really understand it, but I know that when I followed it in the past, it, things just tended to work out for the best. So I just decided right then and there, I was going to do it. If somebody had told the pre-yoga bench pressing. Not in a million years. No. What, what was your name back then? I don't like saying it on the air. Okay. <laughs> Right. I'll tell you off the air. Though. Okay, fair, fair. Just enough. because I just don't, I, I don't really, honestly, I don't care. Yeah. But I just don't know if it's really all that important. That's fine. And people fine. sometimes ask me in conversation and let's say it's John, right? Okay. So, but here's what you can understand is that I liked my name. It's a very unique, no, I'd never met anyone else with my name and I really, really liked it. So it wasn't an easy thing, an easy decision to make. And Wait, you know, was your family upset? No, they were the first ones to jump on board. It was really great. Everybody calls you light. Everybody calls me light. Yeah, especially now, you know, because it actually coincided with the emergence of Facebook. So I, I was able to change it on Facebook and everybody was on Facebook at the time. So people could just see, oh, like Watkins, like Watkins, like Watkins. And people just started calling me that. So but what was interesting is the first day I announced it, I was teaching yoga that morning and I thought this will be a great time to make the big announcement. It was my birthday. I had a big yoga class I was teaching. And so I taught the class and at the end of the class, I said, okay, now from now on, I'm going to be introducing myself as light. You can still call me the other name, but I'm going to be calling myself light because that was the advice I got from, you know, one of those guys who changed your name. Yeah. Just, just start calling yourself whatever you want. What did Pineapple Head think of uh, light? Too conventional? No, no. I mean, he's into it. He's into it. You still, you still know him? Uh, not, we're not like homies, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't, he's not on my text thread, but what, <laughs> you know, I know who I know, I know where I can find him. Okay. So he's still going by pineapple. Head. Yeah, absolutely. That's All his right. name. That's his name. Okay. But in that class, this woman comes up to me at the end of the class and she says, Oh my God, early this morning, my son, my five-year-old son, Tristan came into my bedroom and said, mommy, I had a dream. I'm going to change my name. 
She said, what do you want to change your name to, honey? This is that morning. I want to change my name to Light. <laughs> the kid had a dream that he wanted to change his name to Light. This woman, who had only been in my class two or three times in the span of like four months, happened to be there that day. And she told me that story. So again, stuff like that doesn't happen to me very often. But when it does happen, it's like, oh, well, maybe, maybe that's what I was supposed to do. I don't know, but it's pretty, pretty obvious. You, so you told me before we started recording that you told me something about your personal life now that that uh, I'm intrigued because it, it seems like another example of you following right the exactly still small another, voice, exactly which is you you're you've you've decided to become a nomad exactly yeah I just I just uh, turned 45 on May 30th you're a youngster on May 31st happy birthday thank you um, on April. April 30th, I turned in my, I gave my 30 days notice to my, I had this beautiful two bedroom apartment right in like the Venice, Santa Monica mm -hmm. area of Los Angeles, gave my 30 day notice, which meant I had 30 days to get rid of everything that didn't fit in a carry on bag in my backpack. And so I started going through all my stuff, selling whatever I could sell, giving everything else away. I challenged myself, no storage, no letters, no pictures, nothing, no, no certificates, nothing. And, uh, and finally rolled my little carry on bag out of there on, on, on May 31st. And, and, uh, now I have about a week's worth of clothes <laughs> and, um, my meditation, little meditation teaching kit, which is just a tray and some incense and things like that. And, um, and my laptop. And, and that's Why? Why'd you do this? I don't know. It was just, it just came through and I just decided to go with it. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of things I'd been dragging around for a long time, and I started to get the feeling that my home wasn't really my home. It was just a place where I was staying. Um, there was that combined with the fact that we now live in this shared economy. You don't really need to own anything or have anything. I'm not married. I don't have kids yet, so I admit that it would be a lot more challenging yes. if that was the situation. Yes. Kids are not minimalist. Right. <laughs> At all. And... um and so, you know, and I wanted to just, and, and also my book just came out, Bliss More just came out. So I've been doing a lot of speaking engagements and, and, uh, I do a lot of retreats around the world. So I just figured, why not just try this out? And I mean, when else am I going to do it? You know, life is short. So all those reasons, I just said, let's do it. Let's at least try it out. I can always rebuild. And if I, if it, if it only lasts for a few months, I'll just get a place and restart so over. Where do you go? Like, where are you sleeping tonight? How do you know? Like, what's the I plan? stay in Airbnbs. I stay at friends' places. Um, you know, I, I, it's only I've only been doing it for about a month. So, so far, I've been staying at friends and people with extra bedrooms and places. And I just, you know, I pay people. It's not about saving money. It's just about really just being more in community and uh, and just being more available to opportunities to help people and teach people and whatnot. How far do you have this mapped out? I mean, do you know where you're going to be next week? I don't. I don't. That's the plan. The <laughs> so that's plan, not freaking you out? The plan is not to have a plan. Well, you know, you said something. I, I, I remember this interview you had with the Dalai Lama where you asked, you said your wife is got upset with you because you were, um, you were telling her, you were reminding her that of the impermanence of life and now she can't be happy because she knows it's not going to last. And that really stuck with me. And, you know, there's all kinds of uncertainty that comes from not knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that's probably the biggest one that affects most of us, if not all of us, on some level. And I think if you can find comfort within that, the real comfort is inside, right? External circumstances change. And, and um, so if you can find that comfort and tap into it and expand it and grow it, then I think you can be anywhere and you can be completely fine and i think that's the real superpower so i have to attribute you know meditation with kind of at least giving me a foundation to take that kind of leap because i don't know if i would have done that otherwise i think i probably would have succumbed to pressure from other people saying are you crazy that's not you know you haven't really thought this through all the way have people said that to you no man actually it's the opposite i think people are people are it kind of highlights how much people are kind of attached to their external circumstances for their happiness and yeah, it's funny i don't find it attractive at all yeah i i um i i can imagine you said before when else am i going to do this and right. i heard i hear people saying things like uh, about you know like that about you know running a triathlon or yeah. jumping out of a plane or whatever that i kind of get but 
you, I, well, I was in f- southern France, which is a high class problem, with my wife recently, and I was I'm so happy to be home. Right. Uh, couldn't get the food I want. Um, uh, couldn't stay on my routine the way I like to stay on my routine. So, b- being nomadic strikes me as maybe I'm just a terrible meditator. But I, I yeah, that no, kind of I mean, impermanence. look, don't get it twisted. I I love having a place to come back to. I love comfort and convenience, and um, and so that's that's part of the practice, though. You know, is just taking it on the road. Can it survive on the road? You know, am I like Buddha with my family? Absolutely not. You know, I was talking to the, your producer, Lauren, about this. Uh, you know, she was telling me about her relationship with her family. And I was saying, you know, if you can if you can have that spaciousness that we get from meditation when you're talking to your mom, now you know you've truly, truly arrived. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not there yet. You say you your know? mom can still stress I love my out. mom. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no disrespect to your mom. Mom's yeah, no, no. That's out. just what yeah. they do. That's yeah. their job. Yeah, yeah, their absolutely. job is to worry about everything and to give you unsolicited advice. And she mad that you're not married? She's not mad. I think she wants me to have kids, but mm. she's not mad that I'm not married because she's not married anymore. So I think she gets that. But um, and I'm working on all that. But that and sounds like that's you- like the one thing you can't really control, though, Dan. That's what I've realized in my 45 years is, you know, I can express interest and attraction for someone, but I can't force them to reciprocate that interest. And I can't attraction. imagine that's been a problem for you. It's not. But, you know, you you. I, I, I have the luxury of choice. I have the luxury of being pickier than, than I probably should be. You think that's maybe the, a part of the problem? If I'm being honest with myself, absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. And then, you know, this lifestyle that I've chosen. You know, you're the, you're the meditation teacher. You're now nomadic. I mean, that's not really the grounds for Conducive a to settling st- down. stable relationship. No. No, it is not. Yeah, so she's not going to go back and brag to her father. Oh, guess what? He's he's nomadic now. He <laughs> he can be anywhere at any time. He doesn't like to make plans. But you said uh, you said before about how your life has been pretty calm, and but I mean the fact that you're, you you sounds like your mom and dad might have gotten divorced. Yeah, uh, they got so divorced. That, that's some that yeah. is some turbulence. Yeah, but you know I recognized it at the time. They got divorced really late. They've been married for thirty two years, and they probably should have gotten divorced. 15 years before they actually ended up getting divorced. But you didn't sense that unhappiness when you were yeah, a kid. Yeah, yeah. You did. I, I think that's probably one of the reasons if I'm, you know, probably in my therapy sessions, uh, you know, that stuff comes up and it's This like, is unlicensed therapy, just so you know. But free. <laughs> this is unlicensed free therapy, <laughs> the best kind. Um, yeah, it's come up, you know, and, and, and that's something to take a look at as well. And and that's, that's the great thing about operating at this level of, you know, in this, in the sort of, meditation community is you see that just because people meditate even if they're like decades long meditators they don't have it all figured out their life is not perfect and i know people who meditate who are sex addicts who are still smoking and drinking and doing all kinds of things but that's not to say that that's who they are you know but that's an aspect of them that is still for whatever reason playing itself out and you know we we're all just getting a little bit better and and and, you know, so what did I get from meditation? I got the awareness that this is not this is not a game of perfection. And and it's cool. It's cool to have a therapist. It's cool to to work on relationships and, you know, try to figure all that stuff out and, and, and not put that kind of pressure on yourself. Because I think that's another problem that a lot of people face is on top of not having a level of inner comfort in their external circumstances, good or bad. They also com- we also compare ourselves too much to other people and people may look at you or look at me and think, well, you know, these guys, they've had this meditation practice for however long they've got it all figured out. And, and I'm, I'm happy to tell people I don't have it all figured out at well, all. I think that's good. It, I, I, I see that as a strength on your part, right. because when I'm sitting with meditation teachers, I just, I don't usually bring people like that on the show, but, but when I hear from meditation teachers or spiritual leaders that they, never get into a bad mood or that yeah. you know, they're not it's, subject it's to the BS. to the vexations of exogenous factors that that to me life will still happen to you we're all dying right yeah we're all on a mission to to not being here and um and i think that the more real we are about that the more accessible the practices will be and the more we'll inspire other people and i tell people all the time when i'm teaching them I say that, you know, you're, you're, you work at a bank, you're uh, a comedian, you're a um, grandmother, you're, you're going to have a bigger effect on getting other people to meditate than I am because people look at me and they have all these assumptions. They hear the name, they see the profession, 
They see, oh, he's a nomad. Of course he meditates. Of course this is easy for him, right? They don't see all those decades of preparation leading up to these choices. But if someone is a grandmother or they work at a bank and they happen to set aside some time every day to meditate, that's a lot more interesting to their friend group, their circle of influence, because their friends understand their priorities and they know that this person is a lot like me. And I know that they like watching the voice or they like watching the game or they like going to their children's play. And yet they also spend time meditating. And I think that's amazing. And maybe that's something I should try. So again, that's why I think it's really important for people like you to continue doing the work that you're doing. Cause you're, you're not getting paid for the 10% happier podcast. I mean, you can probably sustain your lifestyle just on this podcast, or on your books, but you do it because you understand the importance of it and, and the effect that someone like you has who's really open about your skepticism and about your internal experiences. And I think just more people need to hear that. Thank you. A um, couple more questions before I let you go. The Can you say more about the book? Because I, I feel like I didn't give you enough of a chance to talk about Bliss Yeah, so the book, the book Bliss More is basically the book I wish I had after those couple of years of struggling to feel anything in meditation. And it, it really is a nuts and bolts manual for taking someone who doesn't know anything about anything, or if someone has been practicing for a little while and they still feel as confused as they felt on day one, taking them from that place to a point where they really feel like they understand meditation in a comprehensive way. So we talk about every single angle of the practice. Nothing is arbitrary, right? The way you sit, the times of day you do it, the types of thoughts you have, how you handle certain thoughts, not other thoughts, how you handle things like sleeping, looking at the time or monitoring the time. All of these things can have an effect on your internal experience. And most of the of the sort of conventional approaches to the meditation, I, I teach the opposite. And and um and so I tell them not to not to judge anything that they've experienced up until this point as being a credit or discredit to their ability to meditate and just to go into it with an open mind, have the experience and see what happens Engage everything on your own direct experience. Don't don't even take my own word for it. Just follow the instructions, split test it, test it against what you've been doing and try what I'm asking you to do. And you'll, you'll see for yourself if it works or not. And then if it does keep doing it and if it doesn't try whatever else you're doing. Um, let's do what I call the plug zone. Um, Let's just pl- tell, tell us about both your books, because uh, I know you have a self-published one yep. earlier, um, and where we can find you on social media. I know we you, we can't tell us where we're going to find you in the world five minutes from now, but we, where <laughs> virtually we could find you. So you can track me at my uh, – I'm mostly on Instagram, Light Watkins, L-I-G-H-T, Watkins, W-A-T-K-I-N-S. Uh, you'll find me online, lightwatkins.com. The book is, is Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. That's the most recent book, and that's all about meditation. I've been saying it's like the four-hour work week for meditation, so helping you optimize your practice. Tim Ferriss has been on the show. So. That's right. And the other book that I wrote, the first book, is called The Inner Gym, a 30-day program for strengthening your happiness. And the premise of that book is that Unlike what a lot of people say in the yoga community, I don't believe that happiness is a choice. I think that happiness is like a muscle that you have to cultivate and strengthen. And that is if you want to be able to tap into that in a, in a, in, in a real way at times where, you know, the circumstances may not be favorable. So those two books are both available um, on, on Amazon. And uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm now touring around giving talks which I call meditation for non-meditators. And uh, and so maybe I'll be in a city near you on one of my talks. I like it. You talked about yoga. I'm still in the beginning stages of my yoga practice. I'm struggling with Bakasana crow pose. Yeah. Where, I, where are you doing your yoga with? At a studio or you have someone coming to you? I have, there's this amazing, uh, I should give her, she deserves a plug. She just gave her brother a kidney. So she definitely deserves oh, wow. a plug. Jade Alexis, you can find her. <laughs> On social media, if you look for her, she's got a, um, a great Instagram account. Anyway, um, she, uh, I was going to the Equinox across the street here uh-huh. years ago, and um, she was teaching spin classes. And I thought she was really mean because she, she was screaming at us. And um, 
my wife at the time, I thought, needed a trainer. So I asked her if she would work with my wife. And then I realized that she was, like, really sweet. And so I started working with her, too. Once a week, she'll come kick the crap out of both me and my wife. And and, uh, and she's a former Golden Gloves boxer. She was teaching me boxing and strength training and cardio. And then she asked if I wanted to start doing yoga. And I've always been against yoga. But because I really like Jade and she's cool, I thought, if she's doing it, maybe, maybe I will do it. And well, Why so were you she, against yoga? Because... I don't know because I'm an idiot. I don't. I, I don't know. I, it, I all the all all the stuff around yoga. I think yeah. is part, part why. And now, so I I don't. I do go to classes once in a while, but most of what I do is with her. And um, yeah, I, I really I, it's helped me a lot with flexibility and and posture and because my posture is terrible. Mm-hmm. But I'm still you know when people say to me I'm bad at meditation, I I kind of disregard that because. Everybody's bad at meditation. It's about, well, at least mindfulness meditation is about just getting distracted a million times. But you can be bad at yoga, and I am definitely bad at yoga. <laughs> but I'm really bad at yoga. Well, you know, I think, I, I don't know if it was Denzel Washington, some movie he was in, he, the woman was like, oh, I'm bad at swimming. He says, you're either trained or you're untrained. Mm. And I think it's just the process yes. Of, yes. of becoming more and more trained. I have one question for you. What have you now gleaned about meditation from having facilitated all of these interviews with all of these mm. experts com- combined with your own direct experiences. Has it changed much at all? Or do you, do you, how do you feel about, about the practice now? Uh, I, f- I mean, the core insight for me that I definitely retain the one that got me interested in the first place nine years ago and that I talk about incessantly and it comes up on the show over and over again is something it, that is inherent in the titles of both of your books. The Inner Gym and Blissmore, which is that the mind is trainable. Yes. And uh, I just think that is, that's the gospel. I think the gospel literally means good news. Right. That's the good news. And it's not my good news. Uh, It's not revealed wisdom either. It's just uh, the truth about the nature of our brains and minds. And just going around telling people that as loudly and in as many formats and in many, and as many ways as possible is, that's my job on the planet, I think. That and being a daddy. Are you going to go ahead and become a meditation teacher, like do one of these trainings anywhere? So so there are levels of being a teacher, right? So it, 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 specifically, I can only speak with some authority about the school in which I've been trained, which is kind of old school Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. Uh, that, that training process is really intense, um, really, really intense. I mean, and, you know, guys... And 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 women who are you know the senior teachers in that tradition have done years of silent meditation retreat. Right. Now, I've done a reasonable amount of silent meditation retreat, and <laughs> I can give I can give instructions to beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in this tradition, you know, I'm, I'm married to a physician. Mm-hmm. My wife has, you know, so many years of she not only did pre med school, but then med school, and then I think five years of post-med school training mm-hmm. in, in residency and in fellowship. And, uh, you know, the meditation teachers in, in the Theravada school, they have comparable levels of rigorous training. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't think given that I'm 40, almost 47 years old, that I'm going to do have the time to do that. But I think on some level I'm a trainer, I'm a teacher in that I, I can you on, speak publicly. You on-ramp people, too. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. And uh, and I think that it is it is important to have people like that out there who are just kind of, you know, shepherding people into the door and, and, and let, reminding people that it's not, it's not it can be cool or it can be uh, accessible or useful for them in their real-world way, real, real ways. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Keep Excellent. up the good work. Thank you. You, too. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who help make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. (laughs) 